Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications at TryLifeMD.com? We're now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. It's fun to put on jeans that you couldn't get into six months ago. Every morning, I look forward to getting on the scale. For anybody who's struggling with their weight, it's a godsend. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at TryLifeMD.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Truth and Justice. This is your Friday follow-up episode for Season 6, Episode 31, and also for the new HBO docuseries, The Case Against Adnan Syed, Episode Number 2, which just aired on Sunday just a few days ago. Hopefully, the sound quality on this comes out okay. I know Mike did a fantastic job last time we did this, but just full disclosure, I am, again, out of the office. I have my mobile studio set up at an Airbnb at an undisclosed location. Uh, working on uh, some of our past season's cases right now. So hopefully this all sounds good. Mike and I are recording remotely through a phone line, uh, and then we're going to try to splice in some audio when we're done. But with all that being said, Mike, you've got questions for both our episode as well as the our season one case, which is information that came from the new docuseries, right? That's correct, Bob. All right, then let's go ahead and get started. Sounds good. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications, and that's why yesterday I knew that he did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From Something Else, The Marshall Project, and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You've seen the film. You know the game. Now, Jumanji just got real. Only at Chessington World of Adventures. Featuring Daredevil Dad, Mom on a Mission, and the kids who can't wait to ride the world's first Jumanji roller coaster. An epic adventure awaits. World of Jumanji. Only at Chessington World of Adventures. Book this summer's must-do day out at Chessington.com. Okay, we're going to start things off with the Melgar case. Our first question comes from listener Summer. Summer writes, You mentioned the garage door being seen open at midnight 
but I thought the earliest report was 7.30. Is this new information? It's not really new information, but it's also not entirely accurate. So we discussed this several episodes back. Uh, If you remember, I don't remember which episode it was from, but there was a bench conference between Barnett and Max Seacrest during someone's testimony. I'm trying to think back whose testimony it was. It might have been Carazal's or possibly Jennifer Martinez's. I'm not sure. But in any case, the bench conference was that Barnett was concerned that Mac was going to bring in information from a newspaper article where it said that Odile Robertson, who lived across the street from the Melgar's home, had had told a reporter that the garage door had been open all night or had been open since midnight or something like that. And if you remember back to that, I went back and looked up the article, and it doesn't exactly say that. It doesn't say midnight anywhere. It says that there's a quote from Mr. Robertson that says something along the lines of, you know, the the garage door had been open all night. During that testimony, Seacrest said that he was going to call Robertson to come testify on the stand and explain exactly what happened. And he never did that, which leads me to believe that that information probably isn't entirely accurate or that Mr. Robertson might have been speaking in generalities. Uh, Because what we do know is that uh, Scott Lacey, the neighbor of the Melgars, had said that he was walking his dog in the morning around 7 in the morning. And at that time, he saw the garage door on the right side. The one was open when the Melgars came, that he had seen that garage door open when he was out walking his dog. So we know at 7 in the morning, the door was open. Uh, It looked like, based on the quote from the newspaper article, that it was open later the night before, but we don't have any accurate information or any way to confirm the fact that that was true. So right now, the only time we know the door was open was about 7 o'clock in the morning. All right, this next one's from Heather. I believe saying that Jim must have left the garage door open is incorrect. That would be an assumption to say that. Shouldn't we be saying that either Jim left the door open or it was opened by someone after Jim went inside? Or is there something I've missed? Well, it, it would be an assumption to say that uh, that Jim did open the garage door. And if that's the way that came across, that's not the way I intended it to. My point was, if we just only look at what we know, and that is the fact that the garage door was open at 7 o'clock in the morning, and we have zero witnesses that say that the garage door was closed any time before that, we have to figure out, so how did the door get open? Uh, we have no evidence indicating that anything happened. The only person that we know that interacted with the garage doors or the openers at all was Jim when he went into the house and he had his bag from CBS and the leftovers from Los Cucos. I'm not saying that we know that Jim Melgar opened the garage door. I'm just saying if we try to cut through all of the speculation and circumstantial stuff, what we're left with is the fact that we know that there was a way for someone to get into the house without having to break in, and that was through the garage door and through the door into the house from the garage. And we know that the door was open at 7 a.m. And we don't know if the door got closed when Jim walked inside. So that's a a hypothesis as to how that could have happened. We have no evidence that Sandy Melgar was anywhere near the garage doors or touched the garage door openers at all. She only testified that she doesn't know if they were open or closed because she went into the house first and Jim was still getting stuff out of the car and he would have been the one to close them. So that was my only point is is tr- just trying to cut through a lot of the speculation, not, not even the circumstantial evidence, but the the theories that are thrown around uh, by the prosecution or even the defense based on sheer speculation. If we just only look at what we know, 
And again, that is that there was a clear and open path into the house. We know that because Herman Melgar went through it and that that door was open at least at 7 in the morning. And we have no evidence to support the fact that the door was closed any time before that because there's nobody that, you know, if we had a witness that walked by the house at 3 a.m. and said the garage door was closed, that's a whole different story. But we don't have that. So that leads me to believe or that kind of leads us to the conclusion that the most likely scenario is that Jim Melgar opened the garage probably accidentally when he was going into the house. But we, we can't say that that's fact. That's just simply based on he was the last person that we know was pushing the buttons for the garage door opener for the other one. We know that he had to reach past the one for the right side door in order to do that. We know that his hands were full. And there's just no other evidence to support that that Sandy opened it later at night. And there's actually there's also no evidence to support that an intruder opened the garage door. And even though both of those are possibilities, it, it could be that Sandy Melgar opened it in the middle of the night. And it could be that a home invader, I mean, there's lots of ways to hack garage door openers and get them to open. Uh, So both of those are certainly still possibilities, but there's just no evidence to support that either of those two things actually happened. Donna says, I'd love to hear from someone within the Harris County Sheriff's Office Homicide Unit about how detectives involved in an investigation split up duties. Is Doucet's excuse that he wasn't led on the case a legit reason he didn't do things he acknowledged during his testimony? I don't know if it's a legit reason. I mean, as I said in the episode, he's he's really thrown Curazal under the bus. And, you know, the bigger point for me was that, you know, he's acknowledging this was a terrible investigation. Even to the point where Mac asked him, you wouldn't have done things this way, would you have? And he said, no, absolutely not. So, so he's acknowledging in front of the jury that this was an inadequate investigation. Truthfully, what I think happened is, in, in I guess in their defense, I think that the Harris County Homicide Division is probably overwhelmed, certainly was overwhelmed at the time. Remember that we found out through testimony that they were actually, Doucet, and, and I don't know about Curazal, but Doucet for sure was actually at another homicide when this homicide came in. Uh, it's very clear from the, the record that there was no investigation. I won't even say little investigation, pretty much no investigation into Jim's murder at all. And that's why, that's one of the patterns we look for that oftentimes leads to a wrongful conviction is tunnel vision and, and laziness on the part of the detectives investigating the case. So, I mean, yeah, it, it should have been done. It, basically, what Doucet is saying is that Corazal's in charge. He takes his orders from Corazal. So he wouldn't have gone to, say, investigate Sandy's medical records unless Corazal directed him to do so. And, you know, a police organization is a paramilitary organization, similar to what I'm familiar with, which is the fire department. And in an organization like this, yeah, there's, there's, there's someone's in charge and someone gives orders. So it wouldn't be something to say would just take off and do on his own without being ordered to by a superior. Now, it's, it's something that you would think that he might bring up to him and say, hey, have we done this? But my guess is Doucet was probably working on multiple other cases at the time. So it was Curazal. And there's an assumption that certain things are going to be done. And you can kind of tell from his testimony that some of the things he's a little surprised about. And and that's why he says he wouldn't have done things this way, because there's a lot of, well, OK, I didn't know that uh, why he's testifying, because he didn't know that, you know, there's there were some very basic things that weren't done in this case. And I think that Doucet probably assumed they had been done. But at the end of the day, it doesn't matter. We can throw blame around whoever we want to throw blame to, but that doesn't really matter. The more important part here is that nothing was done. You know, take Sandy's medical issues, for example. She comes into her interview. She tells them both that 
She has epilepsy. She has lupus. She thinks she had a seizure. When that happens, she has memory problems. She doesn't remember anything. They don't believe her. So the next logical step in any investigation is, okay, well, let's first pull her medical records and see if she even has epilepsy, if she even has lupus. Let's talk to her doctors. Let's find out if what she's saying is even a possibility. And they didn't even do that. And that shows you that they already had their mind made up. They didn't care. And I don't think it's even as nefarious to say, I mean, it's a possibility, but I don't think that it's even anything as nefarious as them saying, well, I don't want to check with the doctor because the doctor might confirm what she said and then we won't have her as a suspect anymore. I don't think they even thought that far ahead. I think she talked, they listened, they didn't believe her, and they just went on with it. But it's, it's sickening to know that they moved all the way up to an arrest and an indictment, then ultimately a conviction, without ever even checking, without ever even attempting to verify what she had told them happened. And it wasn't just her, because her daughter, also Jim's daughter, the next day or a couple days later, tells them the exact same thing. She has epilepsy, she has lupus, she has this memory fog, she has retrograde amnesia. These are all common medical problems for her, and they didn't even check. And it was, it was really jarring to me when... Uh, during the testimony, when you read the transcript, when, when Mac asked Doucet, which is a huge part of the case, it's a huge part of the reason why Sandy doesn't know what happened, when he asks them, do you know what lupus is? And he says, I have no idea. It's like, How do you get to this point, all the way to trial where you're on the witness stand testifying about what she said to you, and you never even bothered to look up what lupus even is? This next one's from Shanna. Is Sandy currently a Jehovah's Witness? Did she leave the faith or get disfellowshipped? Yeah, Sandy is still a Jehovah's Witness, uh, and she has not been disfellowshipped. She has uh, several of her friends and um, other members of the congregation that she was in that are actually on her visitor list now. And at least one, if not two of them, are actually elders from the church uh, that are on her visitation list that come to visit her. They've been very supportive of her. They don't believe that she committed these murders, and so and therefore they have not disfellowshipped her, and she still very much considers herself a Jehovah's Witness. Russell says, have you listened to this week's episode of the Getting Off podcast? If so, what are your thoughts of the bombshell that Sandy's attorney did not receive the report from the blood spatter expert? Can you elaborate on the discovery rules they mentioned in the episode? Yeah, so uh, I did, actually. I wasn't entirely familiar with the podcast, but getting off. It's a, it's a couple of lawyers that are just basically going through the trial transcripts. I listened to this one because someone pointed it out to me that there was a, a bombshell and actually said in their show description that there was a bombshell, but it really wasn't. It, it's something that we've covered before. And, and what she's referring to is during Celestina Rossi's testimony, when her report, her written report on the blood spatter evidence was put into evidence, uh, Mac objects. And then he says, he actually says on the record, you know, I should ask for a continuance based on this because he hadn't received a copy of it prior to the trial, which is a violation of the discovery rules. He says, I should ask for a continuance on this, but I'm not going to. But I'd ask that it be tendered to me and the jury step out so I can review it before we continue the, the testimony. And I kind of went off on this back in December when we covered this because it was like, no, you don't. It, to me, as a non-lawyer, looking at it, it's like, you said right there, you should have asked for a continuance. You absolutely should have asked for a continuance. The thing is, when, you have, when you're dealing with an expert witness like Rossi, who's testifying about blood spatter, it's more than just reading a report. You have to understand a report, and you have to figure out, is what she's saying legitimate? Should I have another expert to counter her testimony 
and I need to understand what the report is saying in a very technical way in order to properly cross-examine her. That's why this information should have been given to Mac way early on. The fact that it wasn't, again, was a violation, but Mac let it slide without objection. He just says, well, let, give, give me a minute to look at it. So he wasn't prepared to cross-examine Rossi to begin with, but I think it was very intentional for Rossi to be the final witness for the state because it's, it's kind of the last thing the jury's going to remember. And if you recall, you know, they put her on under the pretense of being a blood spatter expert with her little, her little four-page report or whatever it was. But then she testifies for hours, and she goes into crime scene staging, and you know, that she thought the, the scene was staged. She, just, she had a lot of really devastating testimony. She, she, she went well beyond the scope of a blood spatter expert. Now, she does have the training uh, which was acknowledged uh, in the beginning of direct examination to talk about some of these things. But that was one of the reasons why it was it was significant to me to find out that, first of all, that it was a little fishy that Rossi was tapped to be the blood spatter analyst when we know that Carpenter, the crime scene tech, was certified as a blood spatter analyst. Uh, it's in his CV. He's testified about it before. But instead, they went out of county to get to Rossi. And then we find out that, you know, Rossi and Barnett are friends. And, you know, I mentioned, you know, a while back that, you know, they're kind of having, they had this whole viewing party for the 2020 episode with Barnett and Rossi and as well as the jury foreman altogether. So it didn't, it didn't quite sit with me well. And part of the reason for that was because when you look at her testimony, I mean, she, she doesn't testify like any expert that I've seen testify before. Usually you'll see things like, well, I can tell from the evidence this, I can't speculate as to anything else that, you know, they, they don't speak in absolutes. They don't speak. Uh, definitively like that because everything is so subjective. And we found in cross-examination that, you know, like she said, nothing was stolen from the house. There was no forced entry. The crime scene was staged. And then in cross, you know, Max says, well, you've never been to the house. How do you know if anything's missing? Did you know this? Did you know that? She doesn't know very much about the case at all, but still she was willing to go on the stand and make very strong statements that hurt Sandy a lot in, in her case and hurt the defense's case a lot. So there's a whole lot going on there. It definitely wasn't a bombshell of any kind for anybody that listens to this show that uh, that report wasn't turned over and that Max should probably have put a stop to things. I mean, he could have asked for a mistrial at that point because he wasn't prepared to cross-examine her. Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications at TryLifeMD.com? We're now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. It's fun to put on jeans that you couldn't get into six months ago. Every morning, I look forward to getting on the scale. For anybody who's struggling with their weight, it's a godsend. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at trylifemd.com. That's T R Y L I F E M D.com. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to. Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. 
Christy says, you said they discussed July 2012, where Sandy's doctor notes say Sandy hasn't had any seizures. Sandy missed her September 2012 appointment, her April 2013 appointment, where doctor notes say Sandy hasn't had any seizures, and the notes from the appointment four days after Jim's murder. Are these records all from the same doctor or different doctors, and what is their specialty? Well, I don't have all those medical reports, and I don't believe, as a matter of fact, I'm pretty sure it wasn't the same doctor that uh, she had spoken to later on in, in April, and that's because anybody that has epilepsy and, and lupus and arthritis and all these different things, I mean, Sandy had a whole slew of doctors that she saw for different things, and that's you saw a little bit in the interrogation where she was struggling to remember the names of certain doctors because she has several that she sees for different things. I don't, I don't have the reports, of what I, even the stuff I do have access to, I don't have in front of me right now as I'm on the road, but I, I don't believe it was the same doctor, but I can check on that and get back to you on that on another follow-up. Kimberly says, what happened to the plan of having an interview with Sandra on the podcast? What happened was, you know, we had some issues connecting. We did speak on the phone, and then we found out that because Sandy is in the medical unit, they won't let any of her phone calls be recorded or let her do any interviews. Uh, it has to do with HIPAA violations, which, I mean, it makes zero sense to me why Sandy, if she agrees to do an interview, uh, because this came up even with 2020, because she had been moved into the medical unit at that point, it has to do with the privacy of the other patients in the medical unit. I don't understand why that's a thing. I, I don't, it doesn't make sense to me, but, you know, and it was already a little iffy because her, you know, her case is still active. Uh, her, her appeal has been, you know, it was submitted by the Seacrest and then it was rejected because it was too long. And then they submitted a new one that was shorter, but it's also still too long. Uh, last I knew, they're still waiting on a ruling from the judge on that to determine if that's going to be okay, that if they can use it because they, they filed a request for a, um, uh, an exception to be made for the length rule because, you know, they cut it down, you know, a couple hundred pages, but it's still too long. So with all that being active and then now she's in the medical unit and I actually used, you know, you've heard a little bit of audio from me uh, and that's when I found out, you know, I used that audio on the show where you heard some little clips from her and that's when I found out that oh, they're not supposed to do that because she's in the medical unit. So unfortunately, it doesn't look like we're going to be able to do any interviews with Sandy right now. But, I mean, it's still better that way. I'd rather have her be in the medical unit and not be able to do the interviews that we'd like to do uh, and have her there getting the proper medical care that she needs. All right, now let's get into the questions on the Adnan Sayed case. First of all, Bob, I want to know what you thought of Episode 2 of the docuseries. I thought it was good, but honestly, I was a little surprised by it. Episode 2, for those of you that have seen it, it was, it was kind of a bold move. Most people, you know, uh, my wife Becky included, who doesn't know a whole lot about the case, but knows a little bit, kind of came from it thinking like, well, holy shit, there's this Jen girl and she's, you know, she's backing up what Jay said. Maybe he's guilty. Basically, what I got out of episode two, as someone who knows the case very well, is it's a setup. It's a setup and then they're going to knock it down later. Because they laid foundation on three different things. They laid down some foundation on when Jay was contacted by the police. And I'm sure it was intentional. I was a little frustrated watching it because I guess I'll talk about that part first. Because they said it in the show, right? So they said, well, Jay was contacted first on February 28th. And according to the police documents, the way they got for, to Jay was Adnan's phone records, Adnan's phone's records led them to the Pusateri house, and the, the owner of that phone that, was, that, that Adnan had called that day was actually Anthony Pusateri, 
They went there. They found Jen. Jen tells them, no, it was me they were calling. And then Jen says that it was Jay that was calling her. And then they went to Jay, and that got him to Adnan. So that's the official record. But then we heard from Laura, Jen's friend, who was with her at the time, who says, no, the police were there waiting for them when they pulled up, and they asked for her by name. They said, are you Jen Pusateri? So they put that information out there, but they didn't explain why that was very significant. And it was significant because there's no way that they could have known that it was Jen that was receiving those calls in the manner that they said they got there, which was they looked at Anon's phone records, they see this call or these multiple calls to this number, it's registered to Anthony Pusateri. They couldn't have gone there and said, are you Jen Pusateri because this phone was calling you? They couldn't have known that unless they spoke to someone first. And then they did show that, you know, the briefly, where the record shows that on February 28th is the first time they spoke with Jay, but then there was two or three other occasions prior to that. And we covered that on a podcast and Undisclosed also covered it. And it was, it was hit on in this episode that uh, Jay was missing from work on two or three different occasions to go talk to the police prior to the police contact with Jen Pusateri. Yeah, but but they just they didn't explain necessarily why that was significant. You really had to be paying attention, and you kind of had to know the case to know why that's significant. And it's significant because that's how you know because Jen is the Jen is kind of the Achilles' heel to Anand's case, right? Well, you can you know we even had Jim Clemente and Laura Richards listen to his interviews. They both said he doesn't demonstrate any actual knowledge of the case. They can tell the police are leading him. They stopped just short of of saying that, you know, if you read between the lines, it sounds like th- this was intentional. I, as a matter of fact, I think Jim might have even said it sure does sound like this was intentional coercion or leading on the part of the police. And, and we know that, that there are things in his statements and his testimony that are provably false. Uh, but then you have Jen. Why is Jen backing him up? Especially when Jen's the one that told him to go talk to Jay to begin with. How could she have had that information? But then what we're finding in the documentary is that they were speaking to Jay well before they spoke to Jen. At least that's the way that it looks. And so it sounds a lot more like Jay, the implication is, what I, I'll tell you this, what I believe happened is they went after Jay. We know that Jay had other charges that were, that were eventually dropped because of this, and then more afterward. They're leaning on Jay to try to get him to testify against Adnan. I believe they're threatening Jay uh, that, you know, basically, if you don't give us him, then we're going to take you down for this. Jay goes to Jen and tells Jen, you need to back me up. I need you to back me up on this. Uh, And so then Jay, I think, told them to go talk to Jennifer. I don't think they got there from the police records. Uh, And then then everything goes on from there. And that gets a lot more complicated. I want to see where they go with the docuseries. But as far as the production of this episode, I was I was a little surprised that they didn't make that point very clear. I, I think that it's just a buildup. So this episode was kind of designed to maybe plant some doubt, draw some interest, lay some foundation, and then I expect in episodes three and four that they're going to topple this. And, and if you if you stayed tuned past the credits and looked at the you know next week on the case against Anand Syed. Uh, we saw a clip where the interviewer confronts Jen with the fact that Christy, the, the, it was not her real name, Kathy from Serial, who had this whole story about it non being there at her house on that night and acting weird. And that corroborated the phone pings. That also corroborated Jen's story that they have proof 
that Christie was not home that night until 9 o'clock at night. There's no way that could have happened on January 13th, 1999. So they played that little clip in the scenes from next week. So that also leads me to believe that this was all, you know, kind of laying. It's almost like it's a re-technique over a four-part docuseries, right? So, So get them talking, let them lay down a foundation, let them get a story on the record, and then confront them with the evidence that conflicts with their story. Um, but then we had we had more. We had a lot about the the location of Hayes' car and how long it could have been there. We have the soil expert, and then we have the um, the surveyor that's out at the location where Hayes' body was buried, talking about that too. So there were kind of those three elements where it, it, they're laying down foundation. Uh, I know that Amy Berg is a brilliant filmmaker, so that's what leads me to believe that, that nothing was on accident. It took three and a half years to produce this docuseries, and they chose very carefully what to put into episode two. So I think that all three of those things, they're, they're laying groundwork, and I think we can expect some pretty shocking revelations probably in episode three and episode four. Awesome. I watched episode two yesterday, Bob, and actually saw a couple of clips with you in them. Did you uh, catch that? Yeah, I did make the screen finally. Uh, <laughs> so it was Mike and I were talking. That's funny you said that. because Mike and I were talking uh, after the first one, and there's all these scenes where I was there. So there was there were scenes from the PCR hearing. There was the uh the gathering at the mosque. There was uh the dinner at the Pakistani restaurant uh after the the gathering at the mosque. And I was watching because I was there. I was I was at all three of those places and the way the camera was cut and angled, I was like just off camera in every one. But I, I, I only saw me once. I saw when they when we were walking up and I was walking up with Robbie and Saad and all them into the courthouse. I saw my my pale bearded face behind over Saad's shoulder for about a half a second. I could tell by your wardrobe uh, from behind where you were. There was a couple scenes there where they were uh, the group was walking to the courthouse uh, down the sidewalk, some long shots, and then over a crosswalk. And I could tell from behind uh, where you were in some of those shots. Nice. Well, HBO better be sending me some royalties now, baby. <laughs> right. <laughs> Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications at TryLifeMD.com? We're now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. It's fun to put on jeans that you couldn't get into six months ago. Every morning, I look forward to getting on the scale. For anybody who's struggling with their weight, it's a godsend. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at trylifemd.com. That's T R Y L I F E M D.com. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to. Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Will says, I don't believe Jay has any involvement still. But what do people make of the police and state taking care of him up through 2009? I still wonder what they had over him that made him a cooperating state's witness. 
Any thoughts on this? I still think maybe it has to do with drugs and his race, given the time period, but I just don't know. Well, given the time period and his dealings with drugs and his race in Baltimore and the fact that some of his charges were assaulting police officers and that he was never convicted and never did any time for any of it, I think it's very telling. Something is up here. He's clearly being protected well after the Anand Syed case. Now, now let's look at this. If, if, if Jay is a legitimate witness, there's no witness tampering. There's no coercion. He's just a state's witness. So... He admits to police that he helped bury a body and then let the family keep grieving and wondering for a month, not knowing where their daughter is, doesn't come forward at all, and finally he's caught, and he comes clean, and they make him a deal that, you know, if you, if you give your testimony against Adnan, then, then we'll cut you a deal. That's not uncommon, but that's, not, that's usually much to the chagrin of the prosecutor. Because, you know, if we're looking for justice, this son of a bitch just helped bury her body, right? He, he helped this guy kill him. We want him in prison, but we have to sacrifice him going to prison at least for a long period of time in order to get the guy that actually killed her. That happens. But again, it's, it's usually to the chagrin of the prosecutor because they want to see him punished more, but they can't because they have to make this deal. So he's given probation. But usually when that happens, I mean, you're walking a tightrope after that. You screw up again, and you're getting locked up. You know, you're, you violated your probation. It's even easier to get a hold of you after doing something like this. But in Jay's case, after he's, he, he gets away with this, so to speak, he doesn't even do jail time. He only gets probation. And then during his probation, he's, he's arrested for drugs and violence and domestic violence. He's fighting with police officers and... Nothing. The prosecutors are dropping it. That that absolutely is inconsistent with what you would expect in any other case if Jay was a legitimate witness. He should have been, that's the first time he violated his probation, he should have been sent straight to prison based on whatever crime he'd committed as well as the probation violation. So the fact that the prosecution continued to protect him for years after that, I mean, there's a lot of theories out there that he could be a, a paid criminal informant and whatever it is, but that, do, that doesn't help their case either. If uh, they happen to find a criminal informant to, to hand them a witness and give them evidence that isn't consistent with the actual crime scene, because they, they just touched on the lividity a little bit also in this episode, and I'm sure we're going to hear more about that, but it's very clear from the evidence that Hay was not buried at, in that hole in Lincoln Park at, at 7 o'clock that night. She was laid flat somewhere for anywhere from 8 to 12 hours minimum before she was moved to that location. But that's beside the point. We'll get into that later. But as far as him being protected, it's absolutely in in stark contrast to what you would expect if Jay was a legitimate witness. This looks a lot more to me like the prosecution isn't necessarily protecting Jay, but they're protecting themselves, if that makes sense. Because, you know, when he beats up a police officer... You know, that's in Baltimore, a black kid beats up a police officer. He's done. That's it. I mean, especially back in the early 2000s. But Jay got away with it. And the fact that Jay's willing to do that, it almost seems like, does he feel invincible? Because he knows that he has something. It's not that they have something over Jay, which is usually the case uh, in a situation like this. It's the other way around. Jay knows that what he testified to was a lie. He knows that he did it upon the orders of the police and prosecutors or, or whatever the case may be. And, and he knows that at any time, if he makes that public, they, I mean, this is bad. I mean, this isn't like a slap on the wrist. This is like prosecutors and police officers going to prison for what happened here. 
Uh, and to me, and it's my my just my personal theory that is that is very consistent with what we're seeing here. That the prosecution was and continued to protect Jay because Jay had something over them, not the other way around. And then and then we heard from uh, I think it was his friend Chris that we saw in the docu series. Uh, that was I think it was the guy his friend from the pool hall or wherever it was. You know, he said that Jay eventually had to move away to California because. Jay would flip on people to the police, so he had some kind of a relationship there. And when we, when I interviewed uh, E, our uh, neighbor boy, uh, several years back during during season one, you know, he said something similar that Jay had burned a lot of bridges with a lot of people over the years, and and he pretty much had to leave the Baltimore area. Jasmine says Jen is the only part of this case that gives Jay some credibility. If she's telling the truth, then Jay told her the story the day it happened. If she's lying, then why is she picking certain parts of the story to contradict him? Well, I covered that a little bit earlier, but you're right that Jay, like I said, Jay is the Achilles heel to Anand's defense. Anybody that says that Jay doesn't know what happened or his testimony was coerced, well, then why Jen? Why is Jen involved? But I think that we're underestimating the lengths that are the, the strength and the power that the Baltimore PD has. And so it's a if then, right? So if a non did it, none of this matters. If he didn't do it, then what does that mean? Well, they're they're leaning on Jay. They're threatening Jay. We know for a fact that they threatened Jay with the death penalty when he took his plea deal to testify against a non. Uh, it was on the the charging documents. We heard from Anna Ben Roya, who was his attorney on the Undisclosed podcast during season one, that Yurik kind of bamboozled her, so to speak, into representing Jay and saying, you know, we're going to charge this kid with, with capital murder and the death penalty if he doesn't take this deal. And so they're willing to do that. It's just as easy for them. So Because remember, Jen's phone number is also on those call logs from Adnan. It would be very easy for them to have roped her into it, too. And so, you know, if, and again, this is in this scenario, I want you to think, because for those of you that think Adnan's guilty, you're like, oh, this is all bullshit. But just think for a minute, if he's innocent, if he's innocent, why is Jen involved? Well, it's pretty easy to see how that happens because her numbers on the on the call records. They're talking to Jay. They're they're leaning on Jay. It's not even necessarily just to protect Jay because remember she gets a lawyer. She was just a witness to something. She gets a lawyer to meet with the police the day after they first make contact with her. It's very easy for them to to say you know have Jay say that that you were there too and it was the three of you and that's why all these calls. So uh, it, it's it's easy for me to understand why she goes along and tries to cooperate. But why she says things that contradict Jay is because nobody has their fucking story straight. Because it's just that. It's a story. They're not trying to recount and recall real memories. They're trying to recount and recall what they've been told to say. And they're all getting little details wrong. And of course they're getting details wrong because Jay's story changed so many times. But if if you track his changes to his story, to, to when they happen and how they happen, they track up perfectly with when the police got new information. So. They have the location data from the cell phones, and then Jay crafts this narrative that hits all those points. And then they found out they had some of the locations wrong. And, he, and then he comes in and gives a new story, and all of a sudden, the locations change, but now they magically fit the new cell phone evidence. And this happens repeatedly. So the police keep changing their story based on what they know, and they're telling Jay to say that, and, and either Jay's telling Jen or they're telling Jen to do that. Uh, and I don't think Jen knows much about anything. I think she was really on the peripheral of all of this, just trying to either keep her nose clean or help Jay or both. But it, she's going to contradict him, and Jay's going to contradict himself, and Jay's going to say things that aren't 
accurate, that are provably false, and so is Jen, because neither of the two of them actually know what happened. Brittany says, Do we know Debbie's alibi for the day Hay disappeared? She hasn't sat right with me since day one. I've always found the seven-hour conversation suspicious. I wonder if she harbored jealousy over Hay's popularity, beauty, and relationships. On episode one, the comment she made about strangulation always being from someone close to the person, calling him Donnie, being romantically involved while your best friend and his girlfriend has been missing or murdered, it's all strange. What do you take away from that, Bob? Well, I want to say, first of all, that you know, in no way, shape, or form do I think Debbie had anything to do with this. As, as I've said, there's something's not sitting right with me. I don't think that Debbie has any direct knowledge of the crime. I don't, I'm not saying anything like that. Personally, and this is my own opinion, hypothesis is based on my communications with Debbie and just witnessing the things she said and how things played out. I don't think that Don confessed to Debbie or anything like that. I think what happened was that Debbie was getting some attention from Don. I think it maybe it, it might that might have been intentional on Don's part, trying to keep a close watch on the investigation without looking like he's doing so. He, I, I think that that she kind of got caught up in that. She got caught up in the fact that this this older guy was interested in her. She liked him. Uh, he was, you know, she thought that he was very personable and a nice guy. She calls him Donnie. And I think it's, if anything, it's just Debbie not wanting to believe that Don could have been involved in this because she was a young teenager and she liked Don. So I, I think that's all it is. Uh, as far as her exact alibi, I don't, in, in my opinion, it's not necessarily relevant, but you know, we know that she was at school that day. She saw, because remember her original statement of the police was that she saw Hay and Adnan that day, saw them walking away in opposite directions. And Hay told her she was going to go see Don. That's why she got on the phone with Don. That's why she created the fake email or whatever she did to try to get in contact with Don was because she suspected, since that's who Hay was going to meet, that he had something to do with it. Bridget says, in regards to the documentary, I was wondering about the lawyer who was denied access. I'm assuming that whether he was allowed in or not, it probably wouldn't have mattered. I guess I'm wondering how that happened and if it's even legal. I don't, I mean, I'm not a lawyer. I don't think it's legal. I think that if Adnan had made some sort of incriminating statement or there was something he said that was used against him at trial in any way, all of that would have been called into question. Um, the fact that he didn't, uh, it just kind of went away. It, it's absolutely bull. If what Adnan says is true, what he said in the docuseries, which is that he told the police he wants a lawyer, then it's absolutely a violation of his Miranda rights. Um, you, you don't have to give a lawyer by name. All you have to do is say you want a lawyer, and it has to stop. They continue to try to question him, so that's a violation. Um, I don't know how it works specifically when the family retains a lawyer for a juvenile, uh, because remember, Adnan was only 17, and the lawyer shows up and says, I want to talk to my client and, and cease questioning right now. That, In my opinion, that should have stopped the questioning immediately, um, but it just goes to show you the further corruption of the Baltimore Police Department, especially back in 1999, that they they just weren't following, they didn't follow the rules, they weren't following the rules, and they refused to follow the rules, and they kind of felt like they were invincible. Kendra says, is there any chance that Amy Berg and crew are going to introduce a Yurik and Ann Benaroya shady connection that saved Jay? You know, I'm not sure. I, I certainly can't speak to what Amy Berg's going to do in the documentary. I assume, based on, again, on the foundation that was laid in episode two, that we'll probably hear about that connection. I'm hoping we actually get to hear from Anna Benroya to hear how that went like we did on the podcast. But off the top of my head, it seems like there have been complaints filed and 
nothing's happened as far as Kevin Urich. He just denies everything. And as a prosecutor, you know, is it, look at the Asia uh, situation. When Asia was planning to come testify in a non-original PCR hearing, and she calls Urich, and Urich tells her, you don't want to be involved in this because he's absolutely guilty. We have all this evidence. You know, that's witness tampering. You can't do that. But all he has to do is say, nope, that's not what happened, and it's your word against his. And most likely, that's you, you need real definitive proof to really make an impact on a prosecutor like that. Lisa says, have you looked into if Jay was a paid informant the way Undisclosed found that those same dirty caps used the same one for three other cases? No, I mean, there's we're not going to find any information on that, no matter how hard we try, because they keep that confidential. I, I think it's definitely a possibility, but I don't think that we would see the violence Jay has towards the police later if that was the case. You know, that that's usually a symbiotic relationship where, you know, they each need each other. I, I think he would have crossed a line there. Uh, so I, I don't know. I mean, I, I think that there's a, a distinct possibility that Jay is the one that received the Crime Stoppers money. So that, I guess, would make him a paid informant. But we, we don't have proof of that either. So I, I don't really know. Lauren says, wouldn't it have been dark by the time Jay says he and Adnan were burying hay? She says, I know in upstate New York, it's dark by 5 o'clock p.m. in early January. To go into Leakin Park in the dark in order to bury a body without any light source seems so difficult to me. Has anyone ever tested if you could see a light from the road? Yeah, I mean, some tests have been done by that. Robbie actually did one there on location. I did some here. We talked about this at length during season one because Jay says he didn't have a flashlight, but he also says there was snow on the ground and uh, they could see by the moonlight. And we checked with historical weather data and there was no moon that night. It was a new moon, which means there's no moon. And there was no snow on the ground. So that's just more and more. That's what I was talking about earlier, that there's things that Jay says things that should be sensory memories of that event that are uh, are provably false in all of Jay's testimony and statements. Okay, our last question comes from Riley. Do we know for sure that Don had a Camaro? The markings on Hay's shoulder resembled the flag design found on the inside trunk lid of the Corvette. You know, we don't know definitively that Don had a, a Camaro. You know, all I know is that Hay says he has a Camaro, and she describes that he let her drive it and her riding around in it. But I don't know that that's actually accurate. Someone did, maybe the same listener actually emailed me or messaged me a photo of the Corvette logo with the two flags that certainly does look like that double diamond pattern or close to it. So it's a possibility, but I, I have no record that Don had any access to a Corvette, but that doesn't necessarily matter. I mean, we don't know that it was Don. It could have been somebody else, you know, so it, it's definitely worth looking into or at least putting a pin in uh, as we move forward and hopefully if we get to any any good suspects to find out if they had access to a Camaro or a Corvette, actually. Okay, that's going to do it for this week's follow-up. Thanks, everybody, for sending in your questions. Yep, thanks, everybody. And next week for the follow-up, it's actually been pre-recorded uh, because I will actually be on vacation uh, during next week. I'm going to be on a cruise ship in the middle of the ocean. So uh, we have an interview. It's a special treat. We have an interview with Mr. Colin Miller coming up on uh, next Friday's follow-up, where we're going to talk about not only the docuseries, but also get a really clear explanation of the ruling uh, that came down a couple weeks ago in Adnan's case. And then this week, hopefully I'm today, I'm going to get written and recorded uh, this week's episode where we'll wrap up James Doucet's trial testimony. So thank you again, everyone, and for putting up with our... We, we did have some audio complications about halfway through this. I don't know if Mike's going to be able to fix them or not. So if you hear some fuzzy buzzing, it's just uh, the equipment that I had dealing with here on my end here in Tennessee right now. So 
Um, with that being said, thank you all so much, and thank you for your patience with our schedule. And we'll talk to you guys in two weeks because next week, as I said, the episode's already recorded. Take care, everybody. Thanks, everybody. Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Mike Bussing is our executive producer, and all music for the show was created and composed by PutThemInASong.com. Thank you to Amanda Meyer with Willow Photo and Design for designing and creating our Friday follow-up logo. And all of our font across all of our logos and banners was created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, Truth and Justice Pod, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. Thank you to our transcription team, Rachel Timberman, Natalie Alicia, Pamela Westby, Katherine Chrisman, and Jen Reese Incandela. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $3 a month, and we have reward levels on Patreon that include access to behind-the-scenes videos of the tapings of our Friday follow-up episodes, Truth and Justice Army t-shirts and hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a 5-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. And if you have a new case that you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website, truthandjusticepod.com, just click on the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is engage in the investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. For all of you tweeters, you can connect with us on Twitter. The show's handle is at truthjusticepod, and my personal Twitter handle is at bobruftruth. And for more personal interactions, feel free to follow me on Instagram at truthjusticepod. Don't forget, we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, or tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, we're signing off. I'm Bob Ruff. And I'm Mike Bussing. And this has been Truth and Justice. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.